Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Dr. Reed Malloy. Dr. Malloy is a board-certified forensic psychologist and consults on criminal and civil cases throughout the U.S. and Europe. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, and a faculty member of the San Diego Psychoanalytical Center. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and is a past president of the American Academy of Forensic Psychology. Dr. Malloy has authored or co-authored over 240 papers published in peer-reviewed psychiatric and psychological journals. He's also the author of many books to include stalking, threatening, and attacking public figures. And his recent book with Dr. Hoffman is the International Handbook of Threat Assessment. Dr. Stephen White and Dr. Malloy created Waiver 21, a structured professional judgment instrument for targeted workplace violence. Dr. Malloy has been a consultant to the FBI in Quantico for the past 17 years and the developer of the TRAP-18 Terrorist Radicalization Assessment Protocol. He was a member of the Fixated Research Group for the United Kingdom's Home Office concerning threats to the royal family and British public figures, and is a consulting member of the Work Trauma Services, headquartered in San Francisco. Welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast, Dr. Malloy. Thank you, Fred, very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm a big fan of your work, Dr. Malloy, but how did you get in this business? Uh, the work itself for me has been um, something that I became very, very interested in after years of criminal litigation with uh, individuals that were charged with a variety of uh, felony crimes, typically violent felonies and mostly homicides. I've done a lot of work as an expert witness in court having evaluated individuals that have committed a serial homicide, sexual homicide, mass murder, uh, single homicides. And that work took me into the essentially the dark recesses of who these individuals are and why they do what they do, which has always been of great uh, intellectual fascination for me and has led me into the research that you uh, that you mentioned. Uh, having done the kind of expert work I did after the offenses, uh, when the individual was charged with a crime and was being prosecuted, I began to realize that I, I needed to do something that was more preventive. So for the past 20 years now, and I've been at these tasks now for about 40 years, for the past half of my career, I've tended to focus on looking at threat assessment, threat management, and to improve the practice of interdicting individuals before they would carry out 
these horrendous uh, crimes, again, oftentimes involving uh, in, the injury and, and killing of multiple, multiple people. So that was what got me into the threat assessment community and then has led to my continued work in that area. A big part of my work has been to consult with the uh, FBI behavioral analysis units, which has been a great source of not only camaraderie, but uh, learning for me, as well as consulting with corporations and universities and other government entities, uh, both here in the United States, in North America, as well as in Europe. Dr. Malloy, what causes people to fixate on celebrities, public officials, or CEOs? That's a very good question. Typically, fixation is how we define that is a preoccupation with a particular individual, uh, or it could be a group. Oftentimes, it's just an individual. And that preoccupation essentially means that they're thinking about that person uh, all the time, and it's starting to really negatively affect their day-to-day activity, their home life, their close, intimate relationships, as well as their occupation. And um, that fixation, what we've learned in recent work we've been doing, tends to be driven by three potentially different aspects of their psychology. The first one is sometimes people will fixate because they have what we call an obsession. An obsession is a belief that individuals typically do not want in their mind. They're hounded by the thought. They want to get it out of their mind. And uh, they're, they're really bothered and anxious by their uh, thought about this particular person. We know that people who have fixations driven by obsessions tend to not be particularly dangerous. In, in fact, they're probably the least dangerous of the individuals that we focus upon in our, in our work. But the other two categories are sometimes very risky. The first one is people will develop a fixation because they're psychotic. In other words, they've lost contact with what we all agree is consensual reality. And what they do instead is they form in their minds a very bizarre, idiosyncratic reality. Uh, for instance, uh, I had a one case I did. It was actually the uh, stalking of the singer Madonna. And the individual fixated on Madonna and his delusional belief, this belief that is uh, a, a symptom of psychosis, was that Madonna was his wife, that he was married to her, and that he should be with her. And now we know that that belief was preposterous and not tied into reality at all. But his drove it drove his desire to be with her, and he would actually... He attempted to get on her property and actually eventually did get on her property in the Hollywood Hills and was in a, got into a, a physical confrontation with one of her security people and ended up being uh, shot by a security guard. Uh, he lived through that and was eventually prosecuted and, and sent to, sent to prison for that. Uh, that's an example of a fixation driven by a delusion. And then the third category is one that I'm working with uh, my friend and colleague, Tahir Rahman, who's at Washington University in St. Louis Medical School. And uh, uh, we call these extreme overvalued beliefs. And they occupy this kind of netherworld or this space between normal beliefs and uh, outright psychotic delusional beliefs. And extreme overvalued beliefs are where you hold on to a particular belief and you tend to magnify it, you relish this belief, it gives you a lot of, in a sense, emotional energy to pursue whatever you want, whatever that belief is telling you to do. And uh, that can lead 
again, to a fixation on a particular person or group of people. Now, these extreme overvalued beliefs were seen now in just a plethora of these beliefs in our American society right now. Uh, the example I'll pick out is uh, the Boogaloo Boys. The Boogaloo Boys are a, a group of typically young males uh, who tend to harbor a variety of uh, nativistic beliefs and male dominance beliefs, but they are focused on a hatred for the federal government, and they're also focused on uh, a hatred of law enforcement. And this extreme overvalued belief uh, that the federal government is their enemy and that law enforcement is their enemy has led now to a number of violent incidents around the United States. Um, we had the arrests uh, prior to the uh, attempted kidnapping of Governor Whitmer in Michigan. We also had uh, a young man named Steve Carrillo, who was a sergeant in the Air Force, that actually was involved in uh, several homicides, one in Oakland and one in Santa Cruz. And he announced himself with another friend, another co uh, you know a cohort with him in the in the killings. He announced himself as a as a member of the of the Boogaloo's. So you get these simplistic, oftentimes binary beliefs. And what I mean by binary is that our violence is righteous and we're going up against an enemy that deserves our violent response. So it tends to be very simplistic and very binary. But the, but the extreme of these beliefs can drive some of the, uh, some of the behaviors that we're currently reading about in the news. That's fascinating. Is someone predisposed to stalk? Uh, again, a very good question. Uh, I think the answer is uh, both probably a combination of of nature and nurture. And let me explain myself a bit. I had a student years ago that did a study of actually felony stalkers, people that were in prison in Missouri for stalking. And she came up with, her name is Chris Keeneland, and she's a fine uh, forensic psychologist in uh, the Minnesota area. And what she did was she found that the stalkers uh, had two things in common. One is that in the first five, six years of their life, they had lost a primary caretaker, typically mom or dad, and it was somebody that was responsible for their caretaking. And then secondly, they had a significant loss in their personal lives in the six months before they began to stalk. And those two facts out of her study uh, tended to uh, support a uh, theory that I had actually started writing about in the, 19, uh, in the early 1990s, is that stalking was a pathology of attachment, that people, when they stalk, are engaging in a pursuit of somebody that doesn't want them around. And stalking on the face of it, uh, as we look at that, is very bizarre behavior because you're trying to be with somebody that doesn't want you there. Uh, if it's just a you know private citizen that you're pursuing, a complete stranger, or a um, you know an ex-wife, ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, or it's a public figure. Even though there's clear information being conveyed to you as a stalker that you're not to do this and you should stop doing this, yet the pursuit uh, continues. And uh, on the face of it, is very bizarre, and we think it is attached to what we call this this pathology of attachment that probably has its roots that go uh, that go way back into early unstable caretaking by a primary caretaker, and then as well as some kind of loss or rejection that's occurred in the months preceding the stalking. So it's a combination not only of the person's history, but also of their of their current circumstance that they're engaging in. 
We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai slash center. That's ontech.ai slash center. Dr. Malloy, as a former agent and running protective intelligence operations for the State Department, when we would engage individuals that exhibited these unhealthy fixations and start talking to them, your initial impressions are, as usual, when you're talking to cops or agents are, these folks must be crazy. I know that's not a medical definition, but what advice would you give to protection officers that are engaging with individuals that might exhibit this kind of behavior? Most of the people that do pursue public figures, in fact, I can give you a specific number there, uh, greater than 80% of individuals that actually pursue a public figure do have a mental disorder. They have a diagnosed uh, mental illness. And um, this is a finding that we've replicated in our work in the United States. It was also seen in a high degree of uh, severe mental illness in the uh, U.S. Secret Service study that Robert Fine and Brian Vosicule did that was first published in the 1990s. We've also seen this finding of greater than 80% replicated in samples in Australia, as well as a number of European countries. So there's no doubt that these individuals typically that pursue public figures are severely ill. The practical application means that uh, when you engage an individual like this, you're not going to be able to argue or talk them out of their pursuit because it's typically not driven by anything, uh, anything rational or reasonable. And I would urge protective details and agents that do threat assessment concerning tar- uh, public figures is to make sure you have a um, have a mental health consultant that's working closely with you. So there can be uh, a local tie-in for the uh, ill individual to uh, to a hospital, uh, to a clinician. One of the things we found in our British work uh, with the uh, Royalty Protection Service and uh, analysis of threats and, and inappropriate communications to the British royal family, that a lot of those folks also uh, had been in some kind of psychiatric care and then had dropped out. And so the intervention became, not surprisingly, that not only was it law enforcement, but it also was, was health services through the home office that would then attach the person or reattach the person uh, to their to their doctor or their mental health provider and get them oftentimes restabilized on their medication. So that psychiatric component is huge. Again, local tie-in for help as well as a mental health consultant to the team. I just know from working the the British royal protective details like Princess Diana or Prince Charles that we had so many problems with fixated personalities and and individuals that traveled or they would show up and they would at times uh, have elaborate ruses that would manifest itself which really kept us on our toes. Yeah, one of the things that is kind of striking about this work too is that there used to be taught the misguided uh, notion to people like me, psychiatrists and psychologists, that typically people that were severely mentally ill could not 
could not organize their behavior, could not plan and prepare in any way that was opposing a particular targeted risk to another individual. And what we've learned is that oftentimes you will see, despite the severe mental disorder in individuals that pursue public figures, you will see a capacity to plan within their delusion to carry out very specific planning and preparing to advance their desires, which may be to be with that uh, with that individual. So we never underestimate the capacity to plan and prepare. The other thing we know about stalkers in general is they tend to be at least average IQ, if not if not brighter. So a lot of times they have the cognitive ability to be able to plan and prepare sometimes uh, elaborate ruses or certain disguises, things of that nature, as a way to uh, pursue their target. Dr. Malloy, as you know, we are big fans of uh, Waiver 21 here at OnTech. How does Waiver 21 help evaluate threats? Well, we designed, uh, Fred, the, the Waiver 21 specifically to help way upstream, identify individuals that may get on a pathway to targeted violence. And we do that by developing a template, in a sense, a map that a threat assessment team at a company can use uh, to filter information that they're gathering on a case. And we have 21 different indicators uh, on this template, and those are the 21 items of the waiver, the Workplace Assessment of Violence Risk. And um, we uh, ask the teams to use the waiver as a means by which they can judge whether a particular indicator is present or absent. I'll give you just a couple of examples of that. Like the area we've been talking about, one of the indicators on the item uh, on the waiver 21 is to look for uh, any uh, indicators of, of severe mental disorder with a particular focus on individuals that are that are psychotic, that they've lost contact with consensual reality. Uh, another item on the waiver 21 uh, has to do with isolation that we have found in our research, as well as other people have found this too, that people prior to engaging in targeted attacks uh, tend to withdraw and become more isolated from other people, and they pretty much become alone or loners in their lives, and they may withdraw from family relationships, other kinds of work, occupational relationships. Uh, another item on the waiver is looking at a weapons preoccupation. People that typically carry out targeted attacks will usually develop some kind of preoccupation with weapons. And when we break that down, we think about firearms, we think about cutting instruments, and then also any kind of improvised explosive or incendiary device. So we're very interested if a person is showing preoccupation with that kind of materials. A big part of investigating with the waiver as your instrument is to look at the social media productions of these individuals. Um, one of the blessings and the curses of social media is people tell you what's going on internally, and they tend to broadcast it through their uh, social media pronouncements. Now, from an intel perspective, that's a tremendous source of, of information for us to be able to monitor that closely. Another conceptual thing we stress in investigating cases is remember that people now are generally living in both the online and on the ground world. And whenever we do investigative work and do threat management work, we have to both pursue information online 
as well as pursue information uh, on the ground, because people are living in both of those worlds uh, uh, contemporaneously. And that's very new, of course, for us that <laughs> tend to be older and have been around these fields for a long time. You know, this is a 10 to 15 year old phenomenon, but has really, it's changed the map as far as threat assessment and threat management. And we think the waiver is a very good way to give you a, a means by which you can assess different characteristics or indicators in the situation and of the person that we know are related to risk of targeted violence. Dr. Malloy, you've been in this business a long time. What's on the horizon in this field? Uh, I think what's on the, the horizon, Fred, is we're going to see uh, a much tighter marriage between uh, big data gathering algorithms and, uh, and human intelligence investigative work. And what I mean by marriage is I think it, I think it can be a happy one. But we need to make sure that both partners are there, that given the amount of data that we have coming at us from, you know, threats, uh, persons of concern, you know, risk data that we're seeing, we're going to need to spend time developing software programs and the algorithms within those programs to be able to sift data so we can at least take a preliminary pass at separating the signals from the noise. And then once we've separated out those signals, then we also need the human investigators that can do a deep dive on every one of those cases uh, to in a sense, tailor the investigation, uh, look for idiosyncratic details that are not going to be picked up by the algorithms to see what the person is doing specifically online and what they're doing on the ground, and then put together a management package, something that you're not going to see you know, uh, algorithms be able to do. But this marriage of human investigative work, human intelligence work, with a large data analysis utilizing algorithms, I think is the future that we're moving toward actually quite rapidly. In fact, uh, a number of folks, uh, particularly a lot of the, the big tech firms, the firms that are uh, not only have a large global face to the community, the world community, uh, but with that large global face to the community, they also then have global threats and they need these kinds of this kind of marriage in order to keep their practices and their corporations safe. Dr. Malloy, is there anything you would like to say that I haven't asked? Well, Fred, that's a big question, but I don't think so. I think we've covered some uh, really good points in terms of uh, threat assessment and threat management. We always like to think some people, perhaps just as a closing comment, sometimes the naysayers around threat assessment and threat management will say that, well, you know, you guys, you can't, you can't really uh, predict who's going to carry out these acts, because in fact, a lot of these targeted attacks don't happen very often. And when I hear that kind of criticism, I always say, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, that we can't specifically predict who's going to carry out the next targeted attack, but we can prevent it. And we prevent it by recognizing the behaviors left of bang, the behaviors way upstream that are of concern. And we know what those behaviors are now. We know the behaviors that correlate with targeted violence eventually. And by addressing those behaviors of concern, I think we can engage and uh, be very successful in our work as threat assessors and as threat managers. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Malloy, for being on the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you very much, Fred. It's been a delight to be with you.
This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.